precious name of your son, Jesus. Amen. 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 Good morning. Man, you guys were singing it out. Did you feel like that? No? I felt, I was over here, I'm like, wow, I'm really hearing the congregation this morning. You guys are really belting it out. Um, except for uh, Eric Johnson, who, uh, <laughs> you want to guarantee somebody won't be here, just plan on a song that they want to hear, and then just, <laughs> we'll just keep doing it until he shows up. Everybody who knows Eric, give him a hard time. He, he would actually, I think, really appreciate that, so... Um, so next week is uh, Vision Sunday, and we will be doing, you've heard it in the announcements, but uh, we're going to do something special, different, unique. Um, I don't know that we've ever done this before. So we're going to do an abbreviated worship. Uh, we're going to do communion, and then we're going to launch into the, the vision. And so Aaron Struble is going to come, and he's going to share um, part of the vision. I'm going to share, and then Ron Moffat's going to share. Um, and so Aaron is the, is the chairman of the building committee. Uh, Ron is the chairman of the capital campaign committee. And I have five minutes in between to share, you know, my part. So, you know, that'll be super easy um, to do 15 minutes at least. So <laughs> if we're lucky. So it, it's going to be a great Sunday. I hope that you can be here next week. And then um, the the process after that is that the following week, so that'll be February 11th, we will have a time of discussion in our adult Sunday school classes. So I want to encourage you, if you're not currently in an adult Sunday school class, to do one of two things. Either uh, join one for that week um, and uh, join the discussion, or there will be uh, an opportunity to get online and and fill out a, uh, a form that would kind of be your part in a discussion. Um, and then there'll be some phone calls that are going to be made. So some people are going to get phone calls. Some people are going to get emails. And some people are, um, and all of us are going to have uh, an opportunity a couple weeks after Vision Sunday to fill out a survey. The whole church uh, will do that. That'll be February 18th. And so after church on that day, and uh, Seth is going to preach that Sunday. So we'll have a little bit of time after the service to uh, <laughs> fill out the survey. Um, and so we're, we just want to gather all the information that we can, all the responses that we can about uh, what we're thinking, planning, dreaming, and uh, let everybody have a, a say and a voice. And then we'll be turning that back around uh, when we gather all that in a report to the church to say, here's where everything has uh, fallen, where everybody's voices have been heard, and here's what the questions are, and here's what the responses have been. Um, and then we'll keep going from there. So that's the, the process. Um, we've been working uh, on a plan, on a, a vision, a dream to build across the street on the property that God has blessed us with. Um, and so it, we're looking at, and we've been talking about this for a while, but sanctuary and a kids area and some adult classrooms, uh, a nice large foyer uh, for the church. And then we're using both buildings together as a campus Uh, here for the church. So that's the vision, and next week we'll show you everything that we've been working on. So um, be here. Don't miss it. Um, I'm sure you're planning to be here anyway, but uh, just to encourage your friends, family, Eric Johnson, uh, to come. Um, I'm going to get in so much trouble for that. So, all right. So the the message is uh, false gods, and we're, we're going through this series on lesser-known stories, and I thought, you know, this, I don't know if this is necessarily a lesser-known story. Uh, It's the story of idolatry throughout Israel's history, which we do refer to and talk about and and know about, Um, but I think there's a lesser-known question, which is why? Why were they so tempted by idolatry? Why was it such a snare to them over the course of, of their history? For, for 700 years, um, they struggled. From the time that Moses gave them the Ten Commandments to the time of the exile, okay, they're, almost their entire history of just being a nation in Israel, they were struggling and, and dealing with this snag and the snare to worship false gods. And you're like, why, why was that? And then the other question that kind of 
it begs a question, which is, do we still struggle with idolatry today? Do Christians deal with this? Do we struggle with this? Is this still an issue? And so we're going to try to answer both of those questions, um, and we're going to pick up the history of this whole story kind of uh, in, the, in the end, okay, at, at the time of the exile. Um, and so let's pick it up in Ezekiel uh, chapter 8, standing as we read God's word this morning, Ezekiel chapter 8, and uh, beginning in, in verse 1, it says this, it says, in the sixth year, and what that means is the sixth year of the exile. So they've been in Babylon, the, the, the Jewish people have been in Babylon for six years at this point. In the sixth year, in the sixth month, on the fifth day of the month, as I sat in my house with the elders of Judah sitting before me, the hand of the Lord God fell upon me there. Then I looked, and behold, a form that had the appearance of a man below what appeared to be his waist was fire, and above his waist was something like the appearance of brightness, like gleaming metal. Um, he put out his, the form of a hand and took me by the lock of my head. And the Spirit lifted me up between earth and heaven and brought me in visions of God to Jerusalem to the entrance of the gateway of the inner court that faces north. Where was the seat, where, where was the seat of the image of jealousy, which provokes to jealousy? Uh, so an idol has been uh, uh, presented there at the temple. And behold, the glory of the, of the God of Israel was there like the vision that I saw in the valley. So you had to go back to Ezekiel chapter 1 to see his vision of God and, and on his throne uh, lifted up. But uh, it says that he saw something similar to that. And then he said to me, Son of man, lift up your eyes now toward the north. And so I lifted up my eyes toward the north. Behold, north of the altar gate in the entrance was this image of jealousy. And he said to me, Son of man, do you see what they're doing, the great abominations that the house of Israel are committing here, to drive me far from my sanctuary? But you will see still greater abominations. And Father, we, uh, we thank you for your word. Um, Lord, we are overwhelmed with uh, a sense of, of your worth and glory and, and honor that you deserve to be worshipped. Solely, no, no, no one else deserves glory. Um, Lord, you deserve all of our worship. And yet we see um, throughout history, throughout uh, the Old Testament and even in our li- own lives, Lord, how tempting it is to ascribe glory to something else um, that is not worthy, Lord. Uh, a lot of the time that it's ourselves, Lord. We, we want glory for ourselves. We want something for us uh, that uh, is not worthy. Father, we pray for your Holy Spirit to direct us into the truth of your word, to understand the message that you have for us, to apply it to our hearts, to be the people that you call us to be, to be a, a countercultural movement within uh, our, our community, Father, to be people that shine the light of Christ wherever we go. Uh, that you would be glorified, that you'd be honored, that you'd be lifted up and draw more people to yourself for their sake, for your glory, for our sake, Lord. Uh, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. So let me explain a little bit about the exile. <clears throat> like I said here, he's, he's, Ezekiel has been in Babylon for a few years. We don't know exactly when he went into exile, but we know that the exile happened six years prior to this. And that, that year we know is 605 BC. So whenever you're in the BC time frame, you're counting down to Christ. So the numbers are getting smaller as you get to Jesus. I don't want to um, think that, you know, we don't all know that, but sometimes it, it gets confusing with the numbers. Um, and so 605 BC the exile happens, Nebuchadnezzar comes into Jerusalem, he conquers Jerusalem, and he takes the best people, so-called best, the, the wealthy, the, the royalty, the educated. He takes those people. Daniel would have been in that group, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, you know, those guys, Daniel in the lion's den, um, the, the fiery furnace guys, you know, they all go in that first exile. They're young, they're royalty, and what Babylon wants to do is take the best people that they, they think are the best 
and to kind of incorporate them into their culture and get their skills and, and their talents and their, you know, the strengths of, of the, those best, you know, educated people into their culture and really try to make them Babylonian, like really transform them into the same kind of people. And so that's how they would strategize. They would, they would go and conquer places and they would take some of the wealthy and some of the educated and some of the, you know, the, the most athletic and the, the most handsome and the most pretty and they'd bring them into their little capital and, they would, and their capital was huge and they would just incorporate them into their culture. So what happens is Ezekiel, probably in the second deportation, so, so the first one was the wealthy and the, and the royalty and the second one was you know, the, the people that were uh, more important but not necessarily royal. And so Ezekiel was probably taken in a second deportation. And so he's there in Babylon. Um, and what has happened is that God has said, um, if you don't turn your hearts back over to me, then this is going to happen. This is the judgment. And so they keep going back and forth throughout their history, worshiping God and then worshiping idols and worshiping God, worshiping false gods and following God and disobeying God. And, so finally, it gets to this point where God says, this is the judgment, and they are deported into Babylon, and Ezekiel's in this group, and he gets a vision five years into the, the exile, okay, and this is where Ezekiel chapter one starts. He gets a vision of the glory of God and this weird uh, creatures, these cherubim that have eyes and, and wheels and faces and all kinds of things, like if you look at... Um, angels, as we kind of put, you put an angel on your Christmas tree, and it's this beautiful, lovely, you know, um, female figure with the halo and the big white wings and the white dress, right? That's kind of what we think of an angel. It's not what most angels are described as in Scripture. They're described as these beings that are freaky and weird and have eyes all over their bodies and have six wings covering their faces. And uh, one, some of them have four faces, a man, an eagle, a lion, and an ox. And they have, I mean, they're just like kind of crazy looking. Okay, so this is what Ezekiel sees. He sees these visions. And that's five years into the exile. Now, in chapter 8, it's been another 14 months. He, he gives us a very clear timeline. It's, it's, this is the sixth year, sixth month, fifth day of the, the exile. And so he saw a vision about 14 months before. He shared that. Now he's seeing another vision. And what he's been doing is what Jeremiah said that they were supposed to do. When they're exiled from Jerusalem into Babylon, they're supposed to just buy houses, have families, work jobs, kind of just live life. And that's what he's doing. He's just living life. He's got his buddies around him. I don't know. They're hanging out. <laughs> I'm not sure what they're doing, but he's got the elders in his home and, and he's having a meal or something. And, and all of a sudden, God um, appears to him again in a vision. And here what we see is he is uh, seeing Christ. If you look at the description that he gives us of he appeared like a man. He had um, the, the flames of fire below his waist. He had this this bright appearance of, of metal, gleaming metal uh, above the waist. That's kind of a, a what you would see in Revelation in what Jesus looks like in his glory. So it's likely that what we're seeing is a Christophany. Okay, Christophany means a, an Old Testament appearance of Christ, a pre-incarnate vision of Jesus. He's the second person of the Trinity. He's always existed. There's never a time when Jesus wasn't uh, alive and, and existed and, and moving and working and, and navigating things. And he's primarily the, the one, the second person of the Trinity, who is dealing with people on a one-to-one -one basis. And so he appears to Ezekiel. You get this weird vision of Ezekiel's there with his friends. And all of a sudden, he's seeing a vision of Christ, and Christ grabs him by the hair of his head. <laughs> Can you imagine this? Like, it's, it is, it's shocking. Like, you're just going to be grabbed by God, by the hair of your head, and whisked away to Jerusalem to see a vision. And it's kind of like, is this, like, get over here. I, I got something to show you. Or... I don't know. It's almost like a, 
Like, you, have you ever been picked up by the hair of your head? I used to have hair. I really did. I used to have long hair when I was, you know, uh, in high school. And, and when somebody grabs you by the hair of your head, it hurts. Um, and so he's just being yanked out of this, you know, this set setting and taken to Jerusalem in a spiritual vision. And he sees um, something very strange, something you wouldn't even imagine should be possible. At the temple, okay, the temple is the place where the Jewish people uh, were to, to give worship to God and sacrifices and do all the ceremonies that they were supposed to do for all the, the civil and religious functions of their people, right? It is a holy place. In fact, in the temple is the Holy of Holies where the, uh, the Ark of the Covenant is, where it was said that God, his presence resided where the high priest would only go into once a year. He would actually, what he would do is he would make a sacrifice for his sins. And on the Day of Atonement, after he's cleansed himself of his sins, then he would go into the Holy of Holies and he would offer a sacrifice for the sins of all the people. But they were so terrified that he might die because people who were not worthy would oftentimes be killed. Uh, when they went to the, the altar in an unworthy manner. And we see that. We saw that a few weeks ago when we were talking about Nadab and Abihu and, and uh, Uzzah and all, all these people that they get kind of, you know, fried when they approach the altar. It, it's what Raiders of the Lost Ark, Indiana Jones, is based on. Okay? It, it really is. It's based on that idea that you don't approach the, the throne of God in an unworthy manner. And so... They would tie a rope around his waist. You've probably heard this before, I'm sure. So that if he dropped dead, they could haul his body out of the Holy, Holy, Holy of Holies without having to go in there themselves and, and possibly be killed also. Okay, that was the idea. And so this is the temple. This is the place. And Ezekiel is seeing in the temple idolatry happening. This isn't like somewhere else off-site. This is at the temple, inside the temple, within the confines of this place where, where it was reserved for worship of God. They're seeing idolatry happen. And on top of that, this is happening after the exile. They've already been punished, right? God has already brought judgment on them to say, you're wrong, you're doing wrong, you need to be corrected, you need to bring your hearts back to the Lord, etc. And what do they do? Instead of repenting and coming back to the Lord and purifying themselves and having a reformation, they actually double down on their idolatry. Five, six years into the, the exile, they are still performing not only idolatry, but in, in more and more gross and obvious ways. And this is like, it's crazy because you think about, do they not realize that this is wrong? Do they not realize that? Are they, do you think that on some level they're, they're, they think that this is a, a gray area? May, morally, maybe we could do this and it'd be okay. But if you go back to uh, the law, what you see is a couple things. One is that um, they were told clearly in, in Exodus chapter 20, they were given the Ten Commandments. And what happens in Exodus 20 is that uh, you see that Moses has delivered the people, God has delivered the people of Israel out of Egypt through the Red Sea. They've brought them to Mount Sinai. They've, now they're going to perform a covenant ceremony, basically like a marriage ceremony, saying that we are legally bound together. And how they do that is that God himself is going to speak the Ten Commandments to the Israelites. He's going to tell them, here are uh, a framework of the law that I want you to abide by. And then after that, they respond and they say, yes, we agree. We're bound to you in a covenant. We, we will be your people. You will be our God. We will exclusively worship you. We will not worship anyone else, anything else. And so the first two commands of the Ten Commandments, the first one is, you shall have no other gods before me. 
That's the first one. Second one is, you shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is heaven above or that is on the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. Shall not bow down to them, serve them, etc. So you have the first two laws both deal with idolatry. Now, let me explain a little bit about idolatry because it can be a little confusing. There are two ways that idolatry um, happens or that it's forbidden. One is that uh, God says, number one, don't have any other gods, okay? Don't, don't worship any other false gods. And here's what you have to understand is any other god, any other religion is inherently a false god or a false religion. Why? Because there's only one creator. There's only one creator. There's only one God. He is preexistent. He is eternal in his nature. And everything that exists, every physical thing, every planet, every star, the 100 billion stars in 100 billion galaxies, try to do the math of how many zeros that is, okay? Every one of them God created and he knows them all by name. God made every spiritual thing. He made every, everything that exists, exists because God made it and he sustains it and it cannot exist without his power keeping it in existence. If he were to withdraw his power, it would cease to exist. It, nothing can exist outside of God's power and his will. So what you have in the New Testament is this teaching that uh, the people were... Uh, the Christians were, were going to the marketplace and they're buying food that was sacrificed to idols. And Paul says, you know, the idols aren't anything, like the statues, like wood, metal, whatever they might be, stone. They make a little statue of some little figure and they would worship it and they would, you know, sacrifice an animal to it and all that. And he says, those idols aren't anything. They're not real. They're not living. They're not actual gods. That's just a little, it's a statue. It's just a piece of wood. Isaiah actually talks about it quite a bit. He says, you know, how ridiculous it is that you worship this thing that you made with your own hands. You took some of the wood and made it into this little image that you're going to worship, and you took the other part of the wood, and you threw it in the fire, and you cooked your, your dinner over it. So said, how, how much sense does that make? But then the Bible says, behind the image, the image is nothing, but behind the image is a demon. And a demon is an angel that has fallen with Satan's rebellion. There, Satan fell into uh, rebellion, and he brought along with him about a third of the heavenly host, what we understand from Scripture. So he's got a vast army. It's, it's half the size of, of the angels that continued in obedience to the Lord, but he's got a vast army, and their design, desire, will, um, their activity, their scheming is to try to somehow get people to worship that which is not worthy to worship things that are not worthy uh, other than God. Anything that would draw your heart away from a right relationship with the Lord. That's what they want to do. And so uh, he says, don't have any false gods because what you're doing is any religion, any worship that is not worshiping God is satanic. You and I don't ever hear that. We hear a lot of things about being tolerant and being, you know, agreeable and being, et cetera. And, and I'm telling you that according to not only just scripture, but basic rational logic, if there's one God, then anything else is evil. So he says, don't have any other gods because you cannot have both of these together. You can't worship God and worship this other thing and it be okay. There's no way for there to be any kind of a compromise or an agreement or complementary relationship. There, it does not exist. You'll either worship one or the other, and that's it. And so what happens is he says, that's number one, don't have any false gods because they're all false. Number two, don't make any images of God, even of, of what you think God should be represented as, because that that's not going to work for you either. A couple things will happen. Number one, God can't really be legitimately represented by anything that we can make, right? Because he's God. He's spirit. He's infinite. He's, he holds the universe in his hand like it's, it's you know, your phone. <laughs> when you think about, he just 
there's nothing, and you and you can't, we cannot wrap our minds around how huge the the universe is. It's so vast we we can't even calculate how big it is. We can't even calculate it. You can't you can't really legitimately calculate how many stars there are. We still we'll we'll look. You know they've done this with the uh, uh, Hubble telescope. They have you know left the lens open for for days and just tried to get as much information from just a, a pinpoint uh, of of the uh, the telescope as they can. And within that little pinpoint, they they find galaxies and galaxies and galaxies that they never knew even existed. I'm not talking about stars. I'm talking about whole galaxies within just that much of a, of a pinpoint of light that with your naked eye, you, it would just look like dark to you. You'd look at the sky and, and you wouldn't see anything. And there's hundreds of billions of galaxies that are just out there that God said, and then he made the stars. I mean, that's how, how big our God is. So he says, how can you really represent God in a way that would be legitimate? Number two, he says, there is something that he did make in his image. Remember what that was? He made man in his, in his own image. Now, <laughs> the question is this. Does man deserve worship? Well, of course not. So even though we're made in his image, we know that we're, we, have, we do not. Uh, deserve any kind of worship. And the other thing is that anything that you would make would become a stumbling block in your relationship with him. Because you'll, you'll get to that point where that thing is so necessary for your worship that you're not even looking to the one that it represents anymore. You're only looking to that thing. Let me get um, real offensive. <laughs> Whenever you're talking about idol worship, you're going to be offensive. That's just how it is. But throughout the church's history, um, we, we have fallen into the same trap that the, the Israelites fell into. They made a golden calf. As soon as the words were spoken, they agreed to the covenant. Moses went back up on the mountain. You remember what happened? He went up there for 40 days. And the people, they turned around. They're like, where's this Moses? And he's taking a long time. And what happens if he doesn't come down? Maybe something's happened to him. Maybe he died. Or... So they, they get Aaron, Moses' brother, to make a golden calf. That's how they pictured God, I guess, as a golden calf. Or calf, I guess. They just had gold to work with. So they're picturing God as this animal. And they're worshiping this, this golden calf. This is immediately after they had gone into willingly a covenant with God saying, we won't do, we won't worship these things, we won't worship gods, we won't make idols. And immediately they do that. And what, do, what did the church do? As soon as Christ has been raised and, and uh, ascended into heaven, we, we make crosses and we put a picture or an image of, of Jesus on the cross. It's called the crucifix. And then we start worshiping the crucifix. And we don't say that we worship the crucifix. We were like, no, no, it's just, it's just an image of something that helps me to, to worship God. And so years go by, and the church says, well, you know, Jesus is alive. He's not on the cross anymore. Let's take Jesus off the cross, and we'll just have an empty cross. And that'll be our symbol of, you know, hope and, and grace and God's provision. And God did, you know, he provided for us, and, and we're saved by what he did on the cross. And I'm, I'm going to tell you that the, the cross is a wonderful symbol for Christianity. It, it absolutely is. But if, you're, if you have to have a cross in the sanctuary to worship, then it's an idol to you. If you have to have a cross in your hand, if you have to be in the presence of a cross in order to worship, in order to pray, then that cross is a, as an idol. Because that cross doesn't deserve worship. The cross is not anything to be worshipped. It's not a talisman that we can use to drive out vampires <laughs> or evil. It's the power of Jesus and his name and the spirit that he gives us. It's no image, no thing, no, no statue, no thing that we can hold in our hand has power to do anything spiritual like that. And, and some people are like, well, I disagree. I have a cross that I like to hold when I pray. And, when I've, and I'm telling you this, 
if that cross is so necessary for you to pray, then it's gotten in the way of your relationship with God. He's, he's not a cross. He's a person. And he will be there with you when you seek him, when you read his word, when you pray, when you worship. He's, and if you got to see, I mean, there have been periods in, in the history of the church where they became iconoclastic, meaning that they got rid of every symbol, every symbol, crosses included, from their buildings and their structures because they didn't want anything to get in the way. What does Jesus say? I want worshipers who worship me in spirit and in truth. It may be a small thing, but for somebody it may be a big thing because it's, it's hindering your relationship with the Lord. So what happens is that they understand clearly idolatry is evil and wrong. In fact, Joshua, um, as they go into the promised land, he begins to tell them, you will have a choice to make, either God or, or false gods. You can't have both. And so Joshua 24, one of the most famous passages in Joshua, says, Now therefore fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Put away the gods that your father served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. Let me tell you something really quick about this. Idolatry was not, it didn't start when, when the Ten Commandments were written. They were struggling with idolatry basically from get-go. It, it's, an, it's a condition of the heart, of every human heart, to want something to worship, to exalt something, to have something that's a priority. And they were struggling with it before they ever got the law. The law just made it clear what it was. But they were struggling with it before that. He says, you've got to put these things away. Um, and if, the, if it is evil or wrong in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods of your fathers uh, who served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in the land you, you dwell. But as for me and my house, remember this, we will serve the Lord. You can't do both. One generation goes by. And the very next generation... <laughs> So they, they say, yeah, we agree. We want to serve the Lord. And they do. That generation did. But a generation goes by. Joshua dies. In Judges chapter 2, after Joshua dies, a generation you know, is gathered to their fathers. Another generation rises up. And verse 11 says, And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. And they abandoned the Lord and the God of their fathers who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. They went after other gods from among the gods of the peoples who were around them and bowed down to them and they provoked the Lord to anger. And so here's what happens. This is what Bible clearly says. They were tolerant of the false gods in their culture. That tolerance led to compromise led to celebration. At first it was just, well, that's fine, that's your God, you can do what you want. And then it was, well, maybe that wouldn't be so bad. And then it was like, yeah, that's what we want to do exclusively. The bales. What, what are the bales and what is this? We've got to understand, you know, what kind of idol worship we're talking about. Because I think a lot of times we don't get what, what it was so appealing about this. Who is Baal? Ashtoreth are the primary false gods that, that the Israelites were drawn to. They knew it was wrong, but they were tempted by it anyway. Why? And so Ashtoreth is a, a goddess of fertility. She's actually, in, in Canaanite mythology, the mother of Baal. She's the mother of 70 gods. One of them is, is Baal. So because she has 70 children, uh, obviously she's a goddess of fertility. Now, let me, in a very PG way, explain um, the temptation here. The temptation is not necessarily children, although that is part of it. You want children, you want fertility, you want crops, you want prosperity, you want productivity. How do you get children? Anybody know? The stork brings them, cabbage patch opens... So, worshiping Ashtoreth 
okay, who is the goddess of fertility, the goddess of having babies, is basically a sex cult. That's what it is. It's about sex. Here's idol worship 101. Pleasure supersedes worship of God. I want what feels good more than I want to be right with God. That's idol worship. That was what was drawing them. That was what was tempting them. That was appealing to them. And it was something that God made. God actually made sex to be pleasurable for us to enjoy within the context of marriage. He has very specific rules and regulations and right and wrong about how that works. And what Ashtoreth did was broke all those rules, discarded all those commands, and said, here, you can just have as much in, in, in any way that you want. And then it becomes a spiral. And then you read Romans chapter 1, you see how this spirals. Spirals into everything goes. Anything goes. Any way that you want, it, it just becomes a destructive, what? Addiction. Our pornography industry in, in our day is the cult of Ashtoreth. Just absolutely. And everything that that has spurned and everything that that's created and all the, the destruction that it has wreaked in our culture today, that's, it has grabbed people's minds. It has addicted their hearts. It has drawn them away from the Lord. Christian people... Pornography is a, such a huge thing growing among women. You look at the statistics and you say they're, the, the growing uh, number of women that are, are now bound and addicted to pornography is increasing at an alarming rate. It's crazy. And it's causing Christian people to doubt their faith, to doubt their relationship with God, to, to feel guilty to feel dirty, to feel like they can't really have a right relationship with God, to sense that, man, this is, it's got a hold of me. I don't know what to do with it. And now what do I do? Am I really a Christian? If, if you have the Holy Spirit. If you have the Holy Spirit working in you, there's this sense of tug of war, of pain, of guilt, of shame, of struggle. And it causes you to doubt your faith. Now, the alarming thing on the other side is if you don't have any guilt or conviction. What if you're engaged in what is clearly biblically immoral and wrong and you feel no, no shame about it at all, no guilt about it at all? What the Bible says is that the Holy Spirit is a spirit of conviction to cause you to feel pain when you do what is wrong in God's eyes. If you have seared your conscience to the point where you don't feel any guilt when you do wrong, that means that you are not saved. You don't have the Holy Spirit. And if you are a person that, that would cause some kind of a fear or alarm to say, I don't feel guilty when I do wrong things, then the only solution is to get on your knees before the Lord and ask Him to save you. Not to say, I need to quit, you know, this addiction or whatever it is, it's to ask God to save you. He'll give you the Holy Spirit to convict your heart to deal with those things. But until you get to that point of salvation, it doesn't matter how many good things you do or how many wrong things you avoid. It's not going to save you. You need the Holy Spirit to come into your life and change your heart. Amen? So this is why idolatry is such a big deal. It, because it's so hidden. We don't even know that some of the things that we're dealing with in our day are actually false gods that have taken people captive. So the other thing is that Baal becomes the um, supreme god of the, um, the Canaanites. Okay, he's the master. He's the Lord. That's what the name means, Lord. And uh, he's the god of thunderstorms and he's the god of productivity, crops and all the rest of it. Okay, And so what happens is that um, his main temptation for people is prosperity, okay? This is the, the desire. 
I want more for me. I want to be wealthy. I want to be protected. I want to be safe. I want to be secure. Uh, I want to have some, some goods and, and some money in my hands so that I can know that I'm going to be okay in then a week or in a month or in a year or when I retire or whatever it might be. To the extent that they, the Israelites had this problem. <laughs> I don't know if you know this or not, but they were supposed to every 50th year have what they called the year of Jubilee. You remember this? Every 50th year, they were supposed to revert everything back to the original owners. As they were given the land in, in uh, Joshua, as it was divided up and how their families were inheriting everything, after 50 years, all the slaves went free, all the land went back to its original owners, and all the, the, the crops and all the fields went back to the rightful owners. They could buy and sell and trade and do all these things within those 50 years, but after that, it was supposed to all go back. You know what happened? They never did it. They never did the year of Jubilee in their whole history. They were supposed to let the fields rest for a year and not plant them. They never did that. They were supposed to have an abundant crop the sixth year, so, so abundant it would actually last for three years, then let the fields rest on that seventh year. They never did it. They kept doing all the work, and they never rested, and they never, they wanted prosperity. They were, they were hungering for it. They were greedy for it. And so what happened was, Baal became the symbol for prosperity. Is there an issue of prosperity in our day? And here's how it works among Christians. We look at our income or what we have and we say, this is mine to do what I want with. I want to, I want car and I want a house and I want the vacation and I want the retirement account and I want the savings account and I want the security that these things give me and to the point where I can't really give anything to the Lord. I'm not going to give anything to the Lord until I get all these things set up. And guess what happens? You never get everything set up the way that you want to be able to give to the Lord because it's an idol. It's captured your heart. The, the Bible says that the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. And it also says that those who desire to be rich pierce themselves with many pains. The many pains that we pierce ourselves with is that there's never enough money to ever feel that you're totally secure or that you have enough or that you, you have the best of enough or you have the, the nicest things that you want or the, all the things that you want or you've provided for your, your kids enough or your grandkids enough or you're going to be able to pay for college for whoever wants to go to college and all the, all the circumstances of life that might ever happen. How much is enough? How much is ever enough? You, you always say, well, maybe if it were... $10 million, would that be enough? Well, no, because then this could happen. Maybe it's $100 million. If I had $100 million, anybody ever think like, what? how am I going to retire? How much am I going to need to just be able to live normally after I'm done working? It's never enough. And, and it's an idol. And so what happens is that the Bible says that we give 10% as a starting point to the Lord and this is an act of worship, and it's an act of faith that we're saying, God, you're worthy. Worthy what? He doesn't need your money. He doesn't need your stuff. You're worthy to be trusted. You're worthy to be glorified and honored and believed in. And the 90%, you're going to stretch to meet all my needs. And and I'm not saying that because I'm looking at all of you. I look at my own insecurity. I, go, I need this and I want this and it's hard to let go. And then you're like, wait, <laughs> am I trusting my ability to make money or am I trusting God to provide? And that, that's an idol. And it's hard because it doesn't seem like something so evil, something you have to deal with. This is what the Bible says. We live in the world, but we're not what? Of the world. Idolatry in the Old Testament was cultural compromise. Idolatry in our life is cultural compromise. Anything that's blocking you and the Lord. So here's what happens in Ezekiel is God says, I'll just show you how this progresses. First of all, they set up idols that were supposed to represent God. So they're already in disobedience. 
But they're like, well, it's disobedience, but it's not so bad because we're still worshiping God. And he says, I'll show you something even worse. And he says, dig in the wall. So they dug in the wall, and he sees some elders in an inner room secretly worshiping idols like creepy, crawly things like bugs and snakes and reptiles and, and birds and all kinds of weird things. Okay, now they're, they're compromised to the point of they're worshiping false gods in the temple. He says, you think that's bad? I'll show you something even worse. And he goes outside, and he sees these guys who are, actually have their back to the temple, and they're worshiping the sun. So they're outside the temple, and they are openly now worshiping a false god. So it goes from worshiping an idol that's not really supposed to represent God, but they're still worshiping God, to worshiping secretly a false god, to now openly worshiping God. And he says, you want to see something even worse? I'll show you this. And he says that there were these people who were, um, they were holding this thing to the nose. It says, behold, they put the branch to their nose. And it's such a weird like little interpretation or, or translation that people are like, I don't know what that really means. And, and what it basically means is that they had contempt for God. They're thumbing their nose at God. So they're, they're, they have contempt for God in order to worship or in preference of worshiping their idol. They've gone completely away from an honoring of God to a rejection of God. This is what happens in idolatry. It doesn't start out as a rejection of God. It starts out as a compromise. I'm, yeah, I can do this, I can do this, I can hold both together. And eventually you're like, yeah, but I'm going to do this over here because now my heart's getting hard. Now I'm going to openly do it, and now I'm actually going to be angry at God for ever saying that I shouldn't do it. This is the process. And it, I'm telling you that in the world, this is what we're trying to rescue people out of. They're, they are bound and addicted and slaves to the, the darkness. And how do we rescue people out of that if we're struggling with that? <laughs> That's the question. If, we, if we're not even getting it right, we're, we're addicted to pornography and we're struggling with greed and, and not giving to the Lord and we're not reading our Bible, we're not praying, and we're, it's just like we've kind of incorporated church into our life for an hour a week on Sunday morning, but it really hasn't been incorporated into our life on a, on a daily basis. It's not really a, a priority as much as it's just a, a thing that we do because it's kind of a nice thing to do. Or it's a nice thing to make the wife happy. <laughs> so, what do you do? Let me tell you three things real quick. One is, are you in the Word? Are you in the Word at all? Are you reading the Bible? And here's, here's one thing that I would say. I talked about pornography, talked about prosperity. And the, the third thing is, um, we're so addicted to our phones and Facebook and Twitter and Instagram and whatever social media thing that you look at People will spend half an hour scrolling through things and, and it'll just fly by in, in a moment. Like, oh, well, what am I doing? You ever been there? And you, this was the time that you had set aside to be in the Bible. Before you know it, your time is gone and you didn't get in the Bible. And that evil, <laughs> that evil social media platform, and I'm telling you, they are 99% evil. There's about 1% good that can happen from them and about 99% evil. And that's what we're doing. We're just scrolling, 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 scrolling. And we don't even think that it's captured our heart, but it has. It's like our mind has been sucked into a void of nothingness. And we're so addicted, but I got to see what's going on. I got to know who said what, and I got to see the comments, and I got to whatever, Right? And before you know it, this is gathering dust and we haven't read it in a week or a month because we've been so tuned into every time you turn around, you're opening Facebook and you're scrolling through to do nothing. It, it's, it's an idol. Getting in the Word means I'm putting that 
Get it as far away from you as you can. I took Facebook off my phone. I don't have it on my phone. I don't have any social media on my phone. Now I check email every, you know, 10 seconds. Will anybody email me? So stupid. The word and prayer. Are you, are you praying? I, I can't answer that for you. The statistics are that we're not praying that much. Are you praying? This is your relationship with God. If God is a priority, the word and prayer should be happening on a daily basis. Would you agree? But you're going to have to put some other things away in order for that to happen. You're going to have to make a choice. And worship, being included, involved, a part of the church body, not just showing up on a Sunday morning. We love and appreciate everyone who shows up on Sunday morning. Praise God for that. But are you involved are you in a study? Are you serving? Are you connected? Do you know people? Are you... Because it's not just about worshiping God for a little bit. It's about the, the, the participation in the kingdom. Amen? You start making those three things a priority, and then you're going to see that idolatry is not your issue. But I'm telling you, I'm pretty sure we're struggling culturally. Not necessarily you personally, but culturally, we're struggling because the, a lot of things are a priority above what I just said. And, and if we're going to rescue people out of darkness, we're going to rescue people out of their sin and out of the chains that bind them, we're going to have to live in a, a, a Christian life that prioritizes God above these other things. We can't do it any other way. And Father, we love you and we thank you and praise you that you are able to do infinitely more than what we're able to do, Lord. We pray for your Holy Spirit to move, to act, to work, to draw us, Lord, to convict our hearts. Lord, I, I believe there are people that right here that are, are doing what they know, absolutely know is wrong, and they don't feel any guilt about it. And Lord, I pray that, that you would pierce their hearts right now with a, a conviction that, that that's... That's the most dangerous place to be in the, in the world, in their life, is to openly sin and not feel any guilt about it. Lord, I, I pray that you, would hope, that you would help them to just call on your name, not to feel horrible, not because they want to feel bad, but because they want to know the hope that, that we have in Christ, to let the Holy Spirit work in their life. Lord, I, I lift them up to you whoever they may be. Lord, I lift up the church that even now is beginning to see and understand, I hope, that idolatry still exists. We, we struggle with it. It's, it's alive and well in our day, maybe more so than we ever imagined. But we want to commit ourselves to making you a priority above everything and help us to make the choices that we need to make to keep you lifted up in the place that you deserve, a place of honor and worship and glory for your namesake, for the world's sake. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to invite you this morning. To, <laughs> you got something to lay down as an idol? I mean, a simple act of just coming to the altar for a moment, kneeling and saying, God, I give this to you, um, can do some amazing things in your heart. Amen? Let's stand and sing.